Well, as Todd said, this weekend we begin a brand new series based out of a book in the Bible called Galatians that I'm really pumped about. But before we dive into that, I wanted to make you aware of some really exciting news regarding my family uh, that we found out rather recently. Uh, Several months ago, my wife Savannah and I found out that we're going to be expecting our third child uh, sometime in April of next year. Yeah, we're we're really excited about that. Thank you. The day that Savannah found out that she was pregnant, she could barely contain herself until I got home later that night. And she had debated uh, among herself if she should text me or FaceTime me while I was at work that day. But she just resorted to wait until I got home so that she could see my response in person and rejoice with me right then and there. Now, that sounds great and all, but uh, I'm the type of person that's always had difficulty in really getting excited and expressing my emotions in the moment. Does that describe any of you in here? Yeah, about 80% of you guys, uh, your, your spouses could join a support group with my wife. And so the night that Savannah told me that she was pregnant, I didn't jump up and down, I didn't scream, I didn't cry. Instead, again, I should have known better, my response went something like this. Are you sure about that? (laughs) Yeah, you laugh about it. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, it's something that uh, we, we are really excited about. And just so you know, uh, I have always said that Savannah has a difficult time keeping her hands off of me. There's your proof, all right? Uh, I'm not lying about it. <laughs> But you know, ever since I learned that I'm going to be the father of three children, it has really caused me to take an assessment of how good of a dad that I am. And quite honestly, I want to be a really good dad. And let me ask you something. How good of a dad do you think I would be if I told you how much I love my children, yet I saw protecting them against harm as something that was optional? I mean, suppose you came over to my house, and the moment you stepped foot in my front door, my three-year-old son was chasing his younger sister around with a steak knife in his hand, holding it above his head, screaming and yelling at her. And, and as you asked me why I wasn't doing much about it, I just kind of laughed it off and said, oh, you know, kids will be kids. He's bound to find out with time that, it, that he shouldn't be playing with a knife. I mean, that's just insanity, Right? In fact, for me to be that passive in the face of such danger and harm would almost give you the right to call Child Protective Services because I would be forsaking one of the most important roles that I have as a father, and that is protecting my kids against harm. You see, love is about providing. Love is about caring and nurturing and instructing. But you know what? Arguably, one of the most important ways for me to love my children is to do what it takes to protect them. You see, my ability to love them will never supersede my willingness to keep them away from danger and harm. Now you see, it's with that motivation that a guy named Paul wrote to a group of churches during A.D. 50 in the modern day region of Turkey. Now he was kind of the spiritual father of these churches and he viewed these churches as his spiritual children. Now, if you read through this letter that he writes called Galatians, you would say right off that, man, this guy, he has some anger issues. I mean, was he not on his meds or something? I mean, for these six chapters, there's no doubt that his tone is a little bit harsh. Towards the end of the letter, he tells these churches that he wishes a group of men who were causing them harm, he wishes that they would just go out and castrate themselves. (laughs) If you've ever wished that upon someone, just know that it's biblical. 
I'm kidding, that's totally out of context, all right? But as one scholar notes, these churches were on the verge of committing spiritual suicide. And so if Paul didn't step in quickly and aggressively, people's statuses with God would be potentially put in jeopardy for all of eternity. And so the question is, what was causing these churches such harm? I mean, what teaching was in the walls of these churches that was leading these people so astray? Why would it cause Paul to be so angry due to seeing his role as protecting his spiritual children? Well, a group of teachers called Judaizers who were converts from Judaism to Christianity, who were really false teachers, were telling new believers and seekers alike, especially non-Jews, that in order to be connected back to God in a relationship with him, it was about receiving grace through faith in Jesus and adhering to some Jewish law. And so in other words, they were saying that, look, if if you want to be made right with God, you kind of had to obey your way into a right relationship with him. Now understand that at this point in the history of the church that this was a really crucial time because it was during this period that Christianity was kind of seeking its own identity away from Judaism. And so here you have these guys coming in and saying, look, in order to be made right with God, it's not so much about the death of Jesus, but it's about your obedience, (laughs) Now time out here for just a minute. A lot of us do this more than we realize. It's what Philip Yancey calls grace avoidance. You see, somewhere along the way, when it comes to our relationship with God, we've bought into the lie that says God will only love us, he will only accept us, he will only put up with us if we obey enough, if we're moral enough, if if we kind of put ourselves together. Now here was the problem with the Galatian churches. These guys were believable, and they were basically saying that your sin, whatever issues you have in your life, it's bigger than the cross of Jesus, and so you need to do God a favor by cleaning yourself up before you think about entering into a relationship with them. Now, this sounds a little bit weird, but this was somewhat of an attractive message to believers back then because it kind of conveyed this message that you can maintain a sense of control when it came to your salvation. Now, for the next four weeks as a church, we kind of want to journey through this letter and we want to allow the grace of God to break us, to free us, to, to bring us to this place of wholeness. Now, it seems a little bit weird to use the word broken and free in the same kind of phrase, right? I mean, we would never usually put those two words together. They seem to be opposites, right? I mean, it's the equivalent of the phrase, you know, successful cult season, right? And we just, we wouldn't put those together, Okay. Now, the word broken throughout Scripture can mean several different things. And so for the sake of clarity, before we go any further, here's how we're going to define broken in this series. Broken is realizing that you're broken and being broken about it. You see, it's the state of this awareness that you can't save yourself. You really don't bring much to the table when it comes to God's affection towards you. And yet the question I want to ask right off is, can this be a good thing? I mean, can brokenness really be a gift? Because what if in real brokenness we have the opportunity to experience true freedom? Now you need to know that this series is going to be a lot about what God has been teaching me the past six months or so. I have seen more than ever how deeply flawed I am as a person, and yet I've experienced and seen and tasted the grace of God unlike I ever have before in my life. 
I mean, I'm more self-aware than I've ever been in my life. And you know what? It's a really intimidating place to be because you know what? I see what is deep within me. I see what my heart is capable of. I see the darkness even within my own soul, and it scares me. Yet what I am learning is that in brokenness comes the opportunity to have true intimacy with God. I mean, in brokenness, we can experience freedom. In brokenness, we're stripped away of guilt and worry and shame and regret and remorse. And Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He said, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And so in other words, what Jesus in essence is declaring here is that God blesses those who come to this state of brokenness. And so could it be that the offer of Christ is to take our brokenness and in exchange he gives us his freedom? I mean, if you're honest, you know you need freedom, right? I mean, you have such a strong drive to be accepted and liked by those around you that you're always looking for ways to crack jokes and put others down so that you feel a sense of superiority over your coworkers or friends. And and what what if you could be free from that? I mean, you always feel the need to prove yourself, right? Whether you're playing a round of golf or it's business or you're talking about politics, if you're not always right, if you're not always first, if you're not always the best, then you feel a sense of defeat and you feel deflated and your ego just goes down to the ground. And what if you could be free from that? Or maybe you feel this pressure to be the perfect mom who has perfect kids. And yet every time you scroll through your Instagram news feed, you see another mom's best version of herself, which, by the way, is nothing but a lie. <laughs> and whenever you see those photos, insecurities well up inside you, and you wonder, do I really measure up? And what if you could be free from that? You see, it doesn't take too long for us to take a step back and see that this brokenness, that this darkness, it resides within each and every one of us. And honesty... Perhaps that's the best place for us to start. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of Galatians. Or if you have a Bible app, go ahead and jump there now. Uh, It is in the back third of your Bibles in between 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. If you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. That is our gift to you. We're going to be on page 823 in those Bibles. And today we're just going to pick up in chapter 1. Uh, beginning in verse 3. If you don't own a Bible or don't have access to one, words will be up here on the screen. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes, again, to these churches with this protective uh, mentality in mind. He says this, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us, you might want to underline that phrase, from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, what's interesting is that Paul, again, is addressing professed believers, yet not even a few verses into this letter, he is saying, hey, remember that it all goes back to the cross. I mean, it all goes back to what Jesus did for you in your rightful place. Do do, do you remember that? You see, Jesus was more than this good teacher. Christ was more than a miracle worker. He was more than a healer. He was and is a rescuer of souls who connects us back to God. And so what Christ accomplished for us on the cross is what's known today as the gospel. 
Now, as a church, we, we tend to throw that word around a lot like we do with other phrases without really clarifying exactly what we're talking about. And so I just want to spend the next few moments to, to draw this out for you up here on the screen, what exactly we mean when we say gospel. Whenever you see the word gospel in Scripture, what does that mean? And so there's going to be three uh, circles up here on the screen to help clarify this. I got this illustration from my brother-in-law. The first circle to help understand the gospel, to understand what Jesus has done for us, you first must understand God's design, okay? First realize that God created this entire universe with a specific plan and design in mind. God has always existed, all right? We, he originally created this world to express his goodness and reveal his glory. And so like any designer or inventor who knows his or her product better than anyone, God's creation came with instructions of how it is to be enjoyed to its fullest, and so part of God's original design was for people, was for us, to walk in harmony with him, to walk in harmony with our creator. And you see, that's what our very first parents, Adam and Eve, did for a while. From the beginning, God has always had a specific design in mind for how we handle finances, sex, work life, families, and relationships. Well, after some time in the garden with God... Our first parents wanted more control, and so they disobeyed the one boundary that God said to not go behind, and the, the one boundary that God gave them. And you see, that single act of treason severed God out of a relationship with him. We, we in essence, rejected him. And so the Bible word for that is the word sin, all right? So God's design, sin. Why were we cut out from our creator? Well, let me put it to you like this. If God did have connection with someone or something that is broken, then he would be forfeiting his sovereignty and goodness. It would totally contaminate his character. It would be a really scary thing to have a God who wasn't perfect and wasn't all-powerful and good. And so sin leads to this second circle, which is brokenness. All right, brokenness, that's the second circle here. Sin offsets God's original perfect plan. Now, you don't have to believe in Scripture. You don't have to know Jesus or be a part of the church to realize that not only is something broken in our community, something broken in our world today, but something is broken within us, right? You ever felt used? You ever been depressed? You ever wanted more of something? You ever just felt empty? You ever been discouraged or felt drained? We've all been there, right? Or some of us are there right now. And so our natural response to our brokenness is to alleviate it somehow and search for answers on our own. And so we try to solve this brokenness issue by maybe working, working harder or earning more money or what some might call retail therapy. Some of us, we try to run after acceptance from others, right? But you see, when we try to fix our brokenness on our own, in turn, it only leaves us more broken. Now again, this brokenness can be a really good thing because it can lead to this deep awareness that we can't save ourselves. And so ever since we decided to go on our own way and rebel against what God said was right and true, he sent himself to meet the demands that he required to be in a relationship with him. And that leads us to this last circle, which is gospel. All right? Gospel. Now the picture we have of scripture, the picture we have in scripture of our relationship with God is that we wanted and filed for a divorce from him. 
And you see, what the gospel says is that God was the one who came down and reconciled us back to him. You see, this is the only solution that can heal and redeem and restore what's broken within us. Now, the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus entered this messed up and dark and broken world, and he never departed from God's original design. In other words, he never sinned. When he was at the age of about 33 or so, the Roman soldiers drug him outside the city gates of Jerusalem, beat him, mocked him, and crucified him. Now, when that happened, God did a miracle for you and I. You see, he put my sin and he put your sin on Jesus. He literally stood in our rightful place, absorbing the punishment that we deserve because of sin in our life. And so if this is what you want for your life, the question is, what's our response? Well, the Bible says that we have to believe and repent in order to have the gospel be a reality in our life. Now, repentance is a fancy Bible word that simply means to change directions, okay? Think of it like a U-turn you would make while driving down the road, okay? So before Christ, you're living for your dreams, your desires, your fulfillment, all right? But then you meet Christ, and all of a sudden, he becomes your boss. He becomes your master. He becomes the one who's calling the shots in your life. Now, what's interesting is that whenever the gospel becomes a reality for us in our life, we then have the opportunity to live out God's original design. We can recover and pursue his original design for our life. And you see, this is the place where wholeness and freedom and deep satisfaction can can become a reality for us. But as Paul, as we're about to see in our letter, this is something that we have to protect in our life. Otherwise, it becomes all about us. And so uh, let's continue on here. Look at verse 6. Paul says this to the Galatian churches. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, there are some phrases here that I want to note here. The first phrase is, is a different gospel. might want to underline that. What is a different gospel? Well, in this specific context of false teachers, Judaizers, were telling these churches that they needed to keep ceremonial laws from the Old Testament in order to be saved. And so while the true, pure gospel says that God accepts us through what Jesus did for us on the cross, and then we follow him, and then we obey him out of delight, these guys were totally turning the tables, and they were saying, no, you obey, you first follow, and then God will accept you. And we do the same thing today, don't we? I mean, a pretty popular phrase today is, God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) I mean, that sounds really noble, right? Well, not only is that nowhere in Scripture, but the funny thing about the gospel is that it's only reserved for those who've come to the realization that you can't help yourself, let alone save yourself. It requires that you release pride and control. And so while your intentions to clean up your life before coming to Christ may be good, that is, real, that, is, that is telling that you really don't understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you. The gospel is an offensive call to surrender total control because you can't do anything to make God love you any more or any less. Now, as I say that, I understand that a lot of us in this room are arguing with what I'm saying right now in your minds. I mean, somewhere along the way, we've bought this lie that says, no, for for God to love me, for him to accept me, then I've got to obey more. I've got to live a more moral life. I've got to clean up my life. I've, I've got to be more controlling of things. And yet the offensive, almost offensive reality of the gospel, it informs us of this, that God 
He does not obsess over a better version of us that we're always failing to become. God does not obsess over a better version of us that we are always failing to come. You see, it's about Christ's performance on our behalf, not our performance on God's behalf. And some of us right now are disagreeing with this statement. You're arguing with it in your mind because of one reason. We associate the love of God, the grace of God, with the conditional love that we're used to experiencing with and giving to others. So my question for you is, what if the love that God has for you is nothing like the love that your father figure had for you growing up? I mean, what if God could be trusted way more than your ex-husband? I mean, what if God wants you more than he wants you to follow a list of rules that you learned to submit to growing up? What if rather than having perfect theology, he would rather you learn humility? Now let me throw this challenge your, your way tonight. If you reject the gospel, if you have rejected the gospel in the past, at least fully understand what it is that you are rejecting. You see, the absolute worst thing that could happen for you is to reject Christ when someone along the way has sold you a different gospel or a false gospel. You see, I wonder how many people have rejected Christ in their life, not because of what it will cost them, not because of the ridiculous claims that Jesus made in his life, but because they've understood a counterfeit version. I mean, you wouldn't refuse to use money just because someone tried to coerce you into using monopoly money at a store one time earlier in your life, right? Well, can I tell you something? gospel of grace is the best deal that you were ever going to get. I mean, it is the only thing that will still matter when you breathe your last and you leave this world. And so if you have walked away, I plead with you that you reconsider and you re-examine just what it is that you are rejecting. Now the other phrase here that, that we need to underline and take note of is what Paul says in verse 6. As followers of Christ, he says, we are called to live in the grace of Christ. And so what, is, what does he mean by this? Now by definition, grace is the undeserved favor of God. It literally means to cover over our brokenness. To grasp what Paul is saying, we have to ask ourselves, okay, well what does our brokenness ultimately lead to? What does a truly sinful life look like? And so regardless if you've been raised in church or you've been raised in a prison cell, your broken nature, your sin has led you to three different attributes, to three different characteristics of your life. First one is shame, second thing is guilt, and the third one is fear. Shame, guilt, and fear. Now as Paul says, to live in the grace of Christ means that the gospel is the only remedy for our desperate condition. You see, only God's grace can cure our shame, our guilt, and our fear. Now let me help you understand this a little bit more by telling you about a mistake that I recently made. And had the grace of Christ come in and helped me out in this situation, things would have gone a lot differently and ended better for me. Over a month ago, I was uh, asked to speak at Signature School in downtown Evansville. And I was running a little bit late on this particular day. So I was driving down the Lloyd Expressway where the speed limit should be much higher than it really is. <clears throat> I was driving beneath I-69 when I saw a little white Dodge Charger in the corner of my eye. And so I did exactly what you do when you see a police officer enter your peripheral. 
I slammed on my brakes, right? That's what you do. And so I did, but it was too late. I looked in my rearview mirror. He flipped on his lights. He sped up right behind me and pulled me over right in front of O'Charlie's for everyone to see as they were driving by. <laughs> well, I have to confess something to you today. Um, before the officer got to my window, I may or may not have pulled my Bible out to a more visible place and hopes that he would have asked me what I do and where I was headed in such a hurry. And I, I did that because it always works whenever I find myself in this kind of situation. <laughs> but this situation was a little bit different. He gave me a ticket that cost me just shy of $200. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be taking up an offering here after service. And uh, <laughs> now um, that's bad, but you know what was even worse was Again, everybody driving by and seeing me there with my window down. You've ever been there before? You know what I'm talking about? That's just embarrassing. And so let me just replay that circumstance. Had the grace of Christ been made available to me right in that situation, had the officer been full of grace that day, things would have gone rather differently for me. All right, he would have pulled me over, and the first thing the officer would have said to me was, hey, Patrick, I don't want all these people making fun of you as they drive by you. I don't want you to be so embarrassed. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn off my lights. I want you to pull over to the Coles parking lot, and let's settle this dispute in a more discreet, less visible manner. And you see, by doing so, the officer would have acted in grace, covering over my shame, because shame is embarrassment over wrongdoing that I, I did in that situation. And so once pulling into the Coles parking lot, he would have come up to me and said, okay, Patrick, I've got to give you a ticket. You are speeding, your tags are expired, your registration is out of date, which are all true, and uh, I, I've, got to give you, I've got to give you a ticket. Now time out here for just a minute. Grace does not lessen the offense, all right? It does not sweep sin under the rug. In fact, if we do that, then it only cheapens what it offers, Rather, if the officer wanted to give me grace in this particular instance, he would have given me a ticket, but with the ticket, he would have pulled out his wallet and said, okay, Patrick, here's what you're going to owe at the courthouse whenever you go to pay for it. I'm going to pay for it myself. So grace, it not only deems us as guilty, but it also pays the penalty on our behalf. Now, before pulling away that day, he would have taken care of my fear, and it would have gone like this. By the way, how many of you, when you get pulled over, you get a little bit shaky, you get a little bit nervous, you know what I'm talking about? All right, he would have said, hey, Patrick, just so you know, I'm not going to think less of you for what you did. I'm not going to go home and tell my wife, you'll never believe what one of our pastors did today. <laughs> By doing so, he would have cured my fear. And then before driving away, he would have given me a little voucher that would have freed me from ever having the fear of being pulled over again and getting a big, fat $200 ticket. That would be grace covering over my fear. And so to live in the gospel of Christ means that we're not only cured of guilt, that our shame is not only dealt with, that, that we're not only released from fear. No, you see, when Christ stepped foot in our place and he absorbed the consequences that we deserve because of sin in our life, he paid for it all, offering us a completely free life. You see, the law can't do that. Your obedience, no matter how impressive, can't do that. It's an offensive call, really. It's only what grace can do. It's why some call it the 3D gospel. You see, Jesus absorbs our shame, he takes care of our guilt, and he offers us a free life absent of fear. Now let's skip down to verse 13 in chapter 1. Paul says this, For, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. 
I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now, Paul's story of bumping into Jesus was extremely dramatic. Many of us know this. It's when the risen Lord literally stopped him on a country road and confronted him as he was on his way to murder more Christians. I mean, if Jesus confronts you face to face, of course you give your life to him, right? Now, we all have different stories of coming to Christ. For some of us, it was a more dramatic moment that inspired immediate change. And then others of us, it was a gradual decision that required a lot of processing on our part. Now, from an eternal standpoint, it doesn't matter how you came to Christ. What matters is that you're in Christ, right? Verse 15. This is just crazy. Paul says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased. Now, stop right there. Underline that. Was pleased. Do you know who we're talking about? We're talking about a murderer. And yet God was pleased to reveal his son to him, the one who is advocating against his agenda. Verse 16, to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so in just a few verses in this letter, Paul stated two things about the gospel of grace. First one is that we're called by it, all right? And secondly, we live in it. And so the gospel always results in freedom for us. But according to what Paul told the Galatian churches, there's a specific place where freedom intersects in our life. It's a place where it begins, and it's this, that freedom, freedom happens through dependence. Freedom happens through dependence. It happens through leaning our life more completely and resting our life more fully upon what Jesus has accomplished for us, not just to be connected back to God, but in order to live out our salvation as well. Now, I know that uh, the temptation for all followers of Jesus is to unintentionally, with time, forsake our dependence upon the gospel because we've thought for so long that the gospel is only necessary in order to begin a relationship with God. I mean, we sure wouldn't say it out loud, but after becoming a Christian, we somehow think that we kind of mature beyond it, right? And yet this is precisely why the law is so crucial. The law was given to us so that we would see our ever-increasing dependence and ever-increasing need upon Jesus' finished work. It's a mirror exposing our brokenness, yet informs us that the gospel is not just the way in which we enter the kingdom, but the gospel is the way in which we live in the kingdom as well. Being dependent upon Jesus begins when we're broken about what's broken inside us. And so let me ask you something. When was the last time you faced your brokenness? When was the last time you were broken about what's broken inside you? Or maybe this was an occasion when life knocked you off your feet. Or maybe it was just a sudden realization that you had. You know, as a pastor, I, I hear a lot of stories and a lot of your stories and hear how some of how you begin, hear how some stories began of how you, you, you began to see your brokenness, which in time led to greater dependence and freedom. When she left me and she took the kids with her because I kept choosing work over family. When I realized that attending church week after week wasn't going to save me, when I saw how my self-centered choices were driving everyone close to me away, 
when I kept trying to climb out of depression and I kept failing, when my mom was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer and there was nothing more that we could do, when for the second year in a row we still weren't able to have a child, when, my, when I found myself taking meth and realizing that I couldn't stop even when I wanted to, when I realized that I had a pattern of bragging about all the accomplishments that I had done for the Lord, when I realized that I had been withholding forgiveness from someone and bitterness and resentment had overtaken me. You see, these moments are what some call gospel wakefulness. When you see your sin, when you realize what's broken inside you, and you just, you can't do it any longer yet, it's precisely in that moment that you begin seeing your need. Maybe for the first time, maybe from a different perspective than you had ever seen before. Jesus had accomplished for you, and you began experiencing his grace, which led to greater freedom. He wants you to remain. You see, Jesus, he, he doesn't just want part of you. Jesus doesn't just want your past. He doesn't just want your addiction or your marriage. No, he wants all of you. us together my heart is yours
where freedom happens through dependence upon what Jesus has already done for us. What does this mean for us? I mean, what does this really look like? Well, what does this look like for me maybe later tonight and then later on this week? And it's a fair question. You may not like the answer. And I really hesitate to tell you because you kind of expect this coming from a pastor. It seems like just the, the easy the easy response. But no, this isn't for everyone. No, it's only for those of us in here who just hate what you see inside you. It's only for those of us who have just come to the end of ourselves when it comes to our marriage or finances, maybe our work life, our role as a mom or dad. It's only for those of us who are just exhausted in life. It's for those of us who just seem to be a little bit disconnected from God. It's for those of us who are just struggling with bitterness and resentment and maybe just anger issues. And it will cost you something. It won't be necessarily a pleasant process and truth be told God may not show up when you think he needs to show up but but if I'm talking to you right here and right now and you want to begin down this pathway of freedom then I want to challenge you to do something that I've really been doing for the past six months or so and that is to begin praying this God expose my brokenness so that I may experience your freedom Beg God for him to show you some things in your life. And don't just pray like you do every single day, but be hungry and thirsty for him to expose what's broken within you. Because, you see, if you are still, if you're still unaware of brokenness inside you, or do you really know and are you really experiencing true freedom? And if you really want to take it one step further, I want to encourage you to maybe journey with your small group and as you pray through this. What I know is that life is hard and following Jesus is difficult, but it's even harder when we try to do this by ourselves. And, and so what would it look like for you to take this prayer and, and really begin to embrace it as a small group or with friends in your life? And because I know that it, it's, it's hard, but it's even, it's even harder when you try to do it by yourself. Some of the freest people I know are some of the most open people as well. Chris and the band here are going to continue singing this song. We're going to go ahead and stand up right now. And I want you to really make this song kind of your time of worship with God. Make it a declaration that you make before heading into this week. And and if you're a guest with us today, we really appreciate you being here. Be sure and stop by guest gathering uh, directly afterwards. Orange walls right as you exit the back doors here. We have a gift for you. We'd love to get to know you a little bit more. Maybe you have some type of decision to make tonight. Uh, God's been stirring something within you. Then what you need to do is just stay seated. And a section host wearing a red lanyard will make their way towards you and listen to you and meet whatever need you have right now in this moment. But I hope you come back next week. I hope we haven't scared you off yet. Um, this is going to be a journey. This is going to be a process for us as a church. And before we continue, let's let's continue singing this song and Again, this world, 
This world has nothing for us. Sing it one more time. This world has nothing for me. This world has nothing for me. Because I need you, Jesus, to turn to my rescue. Where else can I go? There's no other name by which I am saved. Capture me with grace. Capture me. Capture me with grace. Sing that again. Capture me. Capture me with grace. I will follow. 